you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. Why an academic researcher should engage with policymakers? Lene Trapp believes that's the crucial way to ensure the research findings of yours are really having an impact on the bigger society. Welcome to the seventh season of ARD Healthcare. It's a fairly cloudy end of March day here in Darmstadt, Germany. I'm your host Anirban. Together with Henry, it's a real pleasure to welcome Lene Top. Lene is passionate about designing and delivering training and other capacity building activities, primarily for researchers who are looking to increase the impact of their research in the policy sectors. Until February 23, she worked in the European Union's Joint Research Center, focusing on many different aspects of capacity building, but she also primarily came up with this wonderful tool, Science for Policy, that we will be talking about during the podcast. But first of all, welcome to the podcast, Lene. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've been really looking forward to this and I've been diving into AI and AI for medical devices and it was not really something I knew that much about before, to be honest. Yeah, I guess that shouldn't be much of a problem for today. So hi and welcome also from my side. Welcome to the podcast, Lena. It is a pleasure to have you here today for today's episode. So Maybe let us start with something that we do in nearly every episode uh, in the very beginning, where we ask the guest about their becoming. So Lena, can you tell us about yourself? What is your story and how was your journey to the JRC? Yes, thanks a lot. Uh, and, and thank you for, for making me reflect on this. It's always <laughs> good to get these kind of questions after having worked for several years. So as I was reflecting upon it, actually... I have always been wanting to work with people and I've always been wanting to focus on how we can collectively make the world the, we live in a, a better place. And I think I, I was thinking back, I, I grew up in, in Denmark, a northern part of Europe. And uh, in Denmark, it's quite usual that uh, when, when you're a teenager, like 15, 16, you have a job like in the afternoon. And my job was uh, to be a badminton coach for kids. Now that I think back, it was already back then, I realized that I love working with people. So actually, since then, whatever job that I've had has always been working with people. I studied political science and as in, in Denmark and in the UK. And as, 
as soon as I had finished, uh, I moved to Brussels in Belgium in the EU headquarter because I really wanted to work in an international environment. And again, here I worked, I did a lot of trainings of uh, back then of policymakers, how to, to work with the EU, how to work together and product management and so on. And then I've I've moved in my career to deliver trainings on, on various aspects. And then, as you were saying, up until February 23, I had a, a six-year contract at the European Commission in the Joint Research Center. So that is kind of the, uh, the science advice mechanism or the science advice service of the European Commission. So it's a, it's a house of 2,000 researchers that basically is working towards providing the evidence that supports the development and evaluation of, of new EU policies. And my job specifically was to actually improve the capacities of the researchers uh, to better collaborate with policymakers and to, to improve what we call kind of the evidence-informed policymaking. So there's a lot more to policymaking than evidence and science. There's, you know, political negotiations, their values, their interests. So it's not only evidence. So we really worked on kind of as a researcher when you're not only and only in big brackets working with researchers, but working with people outside academia, what is it then that you also need to be able to do? Because it's another skill set. So it was really building the competences of researchers working with policymakers, and which uh, I enjoyed uh, really a lot. So. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that's really sounds very exciting because if you think of it, healthcare really is an intensely human field. Yet when it comes to the engineers who are building the health technology, we often tend to be like the other engineers, the more introverted ones who do not really like to go and engage with people, with policymakers, with the society in general, we don't often even think about the big picture of what we are doing. So why should a technical or clinical researcher engage with policymakers? I think what we have seen is that if policymakers stand on one side and researchers or technical or clinical researchers or any scientists stand on the other side without interacting, then the, the policies that come out they are just not as good as they could be because it's not straightforward for policymakers to to understand a uh, a scientific report and hence there needs to be some kind of translation right uh, adaptation of the knowledge which has often been written for a expert audience right in peer reviewed articles it's for an expert audience it's not kind of for you know general public or policymakers so it's far from all researchers that need to work with policymakers. I mean, of course, we need researchers that, that do research, but we also need somebody who kind of builds the bridge. Because otherwise, what we risk and what we have seen is that a lot of research is being done, but it's not being used. It's not being picked up. And then there's no benefit for society of all this, you know, fantastic research being done. There's new legislation, new regulations, new policies coming out that do not reflect the latest knowledge that we have. And hence, you know, we're not, you know, citizens will not be served uh, to the to the best of their their needs. Yeah. So 
definitely definitely shouldn't be that way so what would you say is something that as a researcher i could improve to uh to sell my results better to policymakers like how should i package my findings i think when at, at the joint research center uh, we developed like a, what we call the 10 tips for for policy impact and the first one there is that you need to understand something about policymaking because you need to understand a little bit the cycle of policymaking, right? When is it that your research uh, should be ready if you want it to have an impact? And this is not about researchers kind of being uh, stay or being directed by the policy agenda. It's just about a little bit being a little bit smart and saying, okay, maybe uh, I can have some preliminary results ready two months earlier, and then, you know, I can have the, the the final ones, what do I know, one year later. So in that sense, we need to understand a little bit about policymaking. We need to understand a little bit about who are the ones that propose legislation, who are the ones that decide, so that, you know, we know whom to address and when to address them. And again, it's not something that every researcher needs to know. But if you have a team of researchers, maybe in that team of what do I know, 20, 50, 100 researchers, one of them knows, and then is kind of the, the knowledge holder on, on that. So I often say that it's it's a collective effort, right? It's not a better, it's not a matter of researchers doing even more work. It's a matter of doing it slightly different to increase the the uptake or the impact of the of the research that uh, that we do. Mm, that's actually quite an interesting insight. So maybe if you're looking at the direct communication between uh, scientists and the policymakers themselves, for example, that one person in the team that is designated to interact with the policymakers. So what are the common uh, misunderstandings that you encountered when yeah, such communication happens, like the misunderstanding between the two parties. Yeah, I think, so when I was at the JSC, at the Joint Research Center, we trained around 700 uh, researchers on, on, on this policy and working with policymakers. So we heard a lot of stories. And I think what often came back is that as a researcher, and it's exactly the same if you ask a policymaker. <laughs> so as a researcher, we we tend to think, oh, there's one policymaker. They're all the same, but they're not. <laughs> they're each individuals. Like we researchers are each individuals, right? So we can't say, uh, tomorrow I'm talking to a policymaker, so I'll focus on this. We have to go a little bit deeper and say, okay, I'm talking to a policymaker who is in the legal department and they are particularly interested or focusing on privacy issues when it comes to AI and medical devices, right? So we, we need to to understand who it is that we have in front of us. And sometimes you say, well, how could I know? Well, you can Google a little bit. You can, you know, you can, it's not stalking them on the internet. It's just looking them up, right? Preparing yourself because you don't have so much time. And hence, you want to talk to them about something that is important to them. What I often say is, as a researcher, there's a hundred things you can say to the policymakers. But you need to find out which two or three of those hundred things from your research is actually relevant to the policymaker and is something that the policymaker would then react to. If you spoke about any of the other 
97 or 98 issues, they would just kind of zoom out and not not listen. So that's the, the kind of the background or the preparatory work that you need to do. You need to figure out what is it that's on the agenda? What is it? How is it that I can attract their attention? And again, it's not about you kind of selecting or just telling them part of the truth. It's just as a researcher, you select, okay, for this policymaker who's interested in the trust and the privacy issues, this part of my research is relevant. For the other, for the economist or for what do I know, it's another part that is relevant. So it's that's, I think, the kind of the mentality that we need to get into, find out what is actually the relevant research results that we should present at this uh, occasion. So if I try to summarize what you just mentioned, Lene, it's that you should not think of, okay, there is a bridge on the other side of the bridge. There are policymakers who are all this one blob and we just go on the bridge and preach about how awesome our research is. But more really try to think these are also individuals with particular interests at a particular point in time, some certain values. And that's not typically very difficult to find. Once you find that, then you have to really sort of pick and choose from your worst experience what would be most relevant and create digestible information that you can present to that person in a very short span of time so that the attention doesn't deviate. So that's probably the first way to think about it, right? Yeah, and it's always think about their needs. You know, don't. It's not a, a scientific conference where you 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 are the one setting the agenda, right? You are there to present your latest research. No, it's here the agenda is being set by the policymaker, and then one could say, "I don't like that. I want to set the agenda." All right, fair enough. But then you know, maybe you are not the one then interacting with the policymaker because th- this is just a little bit how how this works. Yeah, and something that we we have to accept. Mm-hmm. So maybe a sort of uh, naive question from my side. If I was a researcher, or basically I am a researcher, but I don't have any interaction with the policymakers at the moment, but I am doing research in a field that I find is uh, very meaningful and should be uh, yeah, something that would be acknowledged by policymakers to be implemented. So basically, what would be the pathway for me as a researcher to get into that kind of game, like uh, interacting with policymakers, uh, presenting my results to them in a digestible way? So what would you recommend to me as a young researcher? I would say, I mean, if one good thing came out of COVID, it is there's a lot of online conferences now. So, you know, take a little bit, allow yourself to take an hour or two per week to improve your knowledge on on what is going on in the policy world. So it can be, you know, you can listen in at conferences where you hear the the policymakers present their new strategies, their new proposals for legislation. In the European Parliament, you can listen in on the debates. So you hear, you know, which parties are more pushing toward, you know, more privacy or less privacy uh, regulation. You can, there's all kinds of uh, interest organizations like, Umbrella organizations representing like the medical industry or representing, yeah, researchers and then follow their newsletters. So it's really, I think it's about getting your your hands dirty, your feet wet 
and say, okay, allow yourself to spend a little bit of time just kind of, yeah, catching up on, on what's going on. I mean, for policymakers, Twitter is, is used a lot to follow what's, uh, what's going on. As I was saying in the beginning, I'm not a particular expert on, on AI and, and medical devices. So I Googled, I spent a few hours looking into, saw that there's legislation at EU level being discussed. Uh, there's a white paper coming out. There are various industry organizations that have already analyzed it. And so I think this is this is the way to go about it. And I think an equally important part is that then share this knowledge with your researchers in your team, because not everybody needs to do this, right? So share it so that we can kind of pull the resources. So one, one looks into this, the other one looks into, you know, what's happening in the US or something so that rather than everybody sitting in their corner on their own information that we share it so that, yeah we can pull uh, pull the resources. So basically, uh, preparation is the key here. Proper preparation and accumulating knowledge from uh, the right resources. So basically, I was thinking about when I would start yeah, engaging in policymaking or when researchers start engaging uh, in policymaking. What are the, like from your experience, what would be the most relevant struggles that researchers typically face when they engage in that very new kind of field, which is totally different from academic life? Yeah, I think one of them is that policymakers and researchers work on very different timelines, right? So research is, is much longer, much deeper, whereas the policymakers work on really short deadlines that tend to change very often. And so does the agenda, the actors. It's a very kind of dynamic process. So I think, again, it's just kind of a fact of life. So we have to deal with it. We can't go in as a researcher and think we can change the way policymaking works. So it's just something that we have to, to adapt to and accept that that's, that's how it works. I mean, it's not an easy environment to work in, neither for policymakers, uh, but especially not for researchers when you come in. And then also, I was thinking about, you know, as, as a researcher, when, for example, you do, you, uh, you are the assessor of peer-reviewed articles or you review articles and so on, you, you critically assess, right? With, and this is kind of the culture that, that researchers are, are kind of trained in. But as a, as a policymaker, you're looking for compromises, right? You don't critically assess. If you're in a negotiation on a new piece of legislation, you have to find the common ground. You don't have to critically assess and share all your, your critics necessarily, but you have to kind of constructively debate so that you can come to a come to a, a conclusion and come to a new piece of, of, of legislation. So I think those are the the biggest differences, I would say. Yeah, the, the timelines and then you know what we are kind of the way we are we are trained to to work. Mm, so um yeah the negotiation part it yeah it seems like uh, to be really quite different from what is happening in research because in like in the research environments that I'm used to you have a more of a unidirectional communication and you get feedback while yeah instead seeking compromises yeah seems to seems to be a key part here uh so can you maybe give us some uh, examples for some success stories where such negotiations 
or maybe some failure cases where uh, the negotiations were not turning out very well? I think that the cases where you know where you have uh, researchers that maybe participate in in negotiations with policymakers for the first time, and they come in and they're very critical and not constructive, and then you may have policymakers in the room that have spent one or two years building up trust relations and so on, and kind of when you build up trust, you can also uh, you're more free and you're more open to to speak your mind, right? Where as if you come in as a as a new researcher and you immediately speak your mind and just very critically without being constructive, then you know negotiations just they they fall through, right? You kind of break the kind of the trust relationship in the room. So I think those are examples that yeah that when you start as a new researcher being part of this, then you really have to be be careful and think beyond, you know, getting your own research in. It's getting your own research in is not the only thing that matters, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's the overall legislation or proposal or what that matters, yeah. So may I just pick up one of the things that you mentioned slightly before is that the policy world is difficult to work. And you said it's already difficult for policymakers and it's also very difficult for early career researchers who are trying to get into this transition. So can you give us some insights or examples of what are the difficulties that typically we face? I think it's that that we we don't have enough background information. We don't have the the political intelligence to know when to say what. And this, because this political intelligence is being built up over time, over years, and it's being built up also, I mean, continuously, it moves and changes fast. So I think to have this, yeah, the background, the political intention, intelligence, sorry, to, to understand, you know, what is relevant and right to say now, because if you, as a researcher, if you don't have that intelligence, you know, a simple example is that if you push for a new program, funding program, and we are in the middle of an economic crisis, right? It's a very, so there's no money. We are all looking to, to cut budgets and then come somebody who says, hey, I have this new thing. Let's, let's set it. Can we not find some money and set aside for this? This is just, you know, you, you don't do that in a period where there's, where there's budget cuts. and. If you do that, and next time you come back, the chance is that policymakers will remember, ah, this person, you know, they don't really know what they're talking about. So it's this kind of, it's a long-term relationship, right? So it's not a one-off, it's a long-term. So you have to think about, you know, where do you want to use your capital in a way, you know, your, your goodwill and not waste it on something that has no chance of, of succeeding. or in AI, I mean, if it's all about privacy, you know, then don't come forward with something where you know that the, the privacy is a little bit so-so. Uh, uh, yeah. So I think then you lose credibility and then the chance of you being listened to next time has diminished. I see. So what you are basically suggesting is that the researchers have to have a lot of, how to say, common sense intelligence, political intelligence, to some extent, street smartness, 
to know when to say, what to say, and what really aligns to the, let's say, the background of on which they are talking about it. It's way beyond the typical research questions that they are thinking. And this brings us to the second part of the podcast. And for this, we'll be talking about your amazing Science for Policy tool. And so basically, this is also interesting because we all already talked about the many difficulties that researchers face when they try to transition from one part to another. And what this tool does from a researcher's perspective who actually tried to use it is basically gives you an insight of how, let's say, where do you currently stand in terms of understanding the policy world? So you have this big list of questions that you answer and based on your answers, you get a feedback with different color codes of how mature your understanding is of policy. But it's not just ending there. What you also do is like you provide a lot of materials. Often uh, these are open source materials, uh, free to download, and you can read and get better and try again. And this is basically very interesting because a lot of the materials I was actually browsing through are general purpose. Those are not really just for European Union, but most of those intelligence works as well to any other democracies, I would say. But first of all, can you give us the background story of the tool? How did it develop? How was your involvement into it? Yeah. So it it basically five years ago started as a research project on what are the competences that you need as a researcher to work at this interface between science and policy? Because what we realized was that it requires a distinct set of competences. It, and this is exactly goes um, back to these difficulties that we've, that we, and challenges that we discussed. And these specific or distinct competences is not something that we as researchers at university are being taught. So there was basically a gap between what we are supposed to be able to do and what we've been taught. So this was the gap that we tried to fill. So it resulted in a in a peer-reviewed article in, in a part of uh, Nature from, I think, from 2019. And then we moved on to then uh, mapping these competences that you need as a scientist when you work at the interface between science and policy, but not only mapping them, but also kind of putting in progression levels or proficient levels, proficiency levels. So you can say that in terms of understanding policy, I want to be an expert. Okay, what should you be able to do? Or in terms of political savviness, I just want to be aware of it, but I don't need to be the expert on it. So we developed this competence framework with uh, proficiency levels. And then as the last bit, bit, we developed this smart for policy self-reflection tool. So which, as, as you said, allows you to go in and reflect on, you know, in terms of understanding policy, in terms of communication with a non-scientific audience, in terms of collaboration across disciplines and with policymakers, in terms of engaging with citizens and stakeholders, in terms of participating in policy making, where do I stand? And I would say from the self-reflection tool, it's not so important where you stand. That's not actually what we want to get out of it. It's more that 
gets it hopefully starts reflection researchers to reflect on ah in top of on top of my uh, of my research i could do a podcast or that is uh, targeting not a non-scientific audience or i could do a blog or i could write an opinion piece you know i could how can i reach out to a non-scientific audience or i could participate in in policy events not only scientific events so the idea was basically for researchers to start opening or widening the horizon of what you can do in order to increase the impact of your research on policymaking. And just to round up that answer, it's very important to say that there's two sides of this coin. There's also capacity building for policymakers, right? So it's not only about researchers having to to build the competences. It's equally as much about policymakers having to become better at working with evidence. It's just that in this forum here, we, we're speaking about researchers, but in parallel, we develop competence framework for policymakers and the smart for policy is both for policymakers and researchers, but there's two separate questionnaires. But what is interesting is that half of the questions are the same. So the ones on communication, the ones on collaboration, they're almost identical. So we're not that different. You know, we're not that different. And this is also kind of the message that we wanted to pass that we may think that we are very different, but, you know, with a little bit of effort and a little bit of empathy, we will make it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I mean, we are all uh, humans and we are all intelligent people. So, yeah, I think we have yeah, much more things in common than uh, we might think we have. So it's a very nice initiative. I find that you worked on this tool set on basically synthesizing the knowledge that is necessary to engage in policymaking. Basically, have you received some feedback on it? Like, um, do you know some success stories from people who have been using the tool? So the tool came out in mid-February. So so it's it's still very early days. Before the tool did this where you can go in and reflect on your competences, we had the competent framework itself. So you could read through it. And that, for example, is currently being applied or deployed by the Office of Chief Scientific Advisor in Quebec, in Canada. So they basically started a one-year program for researchers where to become better at uh, working with policymakers. So it's a one-year program. I think the time investment is one day a month or something. But they, they use the competence framework to say, okay, these are the competences that, that are necessary, uh, the collective set of competences that are necessary. What do we already have in the room, in this group of people that do this program? And where would we like to be in one year's time? So they basically used to just say, okay, what is the, the baseline now? Where do we want to be in one year's time? What level, which competences? And then they develop the plan, say, okay, what are then the activities that we should take upon us uh, in these next 12 months to get from, from where we are to where we want to be? That's one way to use it. It can also be used kind of for organizations to see we don't understand why we why our research is not being picked up, you know, and then it can be used to see, okay, what are the competences that we have among the team or within the team? And then maybe we realize that we actually lack this political savviness, and that might be a big reason for why we are not succeeding. So it can be used in that way by HR or, or whatever. And then, of course, it can be used by individuals as a kind of a career plan, say, 
as an early career researcher. This is where I am right now. In the next four or five years, where do I want to be in four or five years? And then you develop a plan and say, okay, that means that in 2023, I should, you know, follow trainings of this, or I should work on these or that products uh, or with this, this or that supervisor who's knowledgeable about this. So you can use it as a, as a planning tool. But for the time being, we only know of it being deployed in, in Canada. Well, which is fine because it's still, it's been out for six weeks. So <laughs> it's okay. Of course. But it's, it's also like something that us as researchers has to learn is that the democratic process is slow. It's not like our research environment, you run some experiments on some data, you train your neural networks, you get your results, you publish all done in six months. That's not how, how things work. But at the same time, it's also uh, very interesting because you were involved in a joint research center for six years. And you have put together with your colleagues an immense amount of effort in making policy more approachable for the researchers. So can you give us some insight of, let's say, from when you started, how, what were the main difficulties that researchers had and how versus someone who is just starting now and trying to get into and what were some of those uh, barriers that you have been successfully able to remove? Yeah, I think one of the myths a little bit is that we need to stay at arm length, right? We can't be too close to policymakers because then we could be accused of policy influencing our research, right? That we lose our integrity, we lose our independence. But I think what we can see, at least in the Joint Research Center, it has moved the kind of the, the thinking has moved and the acceptance has moved that if we want to make research relevant, we do need to have some kind of interaction with policymakers. It doesn't mean that we've lost our independence. It doesn't mean that we've lost our integrity. It just means that it becomes more relevant and more timely. And this is so important for the research to be picked up. You know, that it's, it comes back to this, but I said that, you know, we could research so many different things, but what is it that is relevant for policymakers? Again, it's not about changing the research framework upside down. It's about maybe adding one more element to to look into or maybe uh, changing the the timeline a little bit because the new legislation is coming out or being evaluated in 18 months or some you know so it's increasing the interaction without losing independence and integrity but if we stay each party on our side of the bridge then policymaking is is not going to be very very much based on on evidence because it's not you can't just it's not facts don't speak for themselves right they need to be explained to a non-scientific audience and yeah that means interaction so i think that's a kind of realization that has come generally in research society i would say that this is moving towards we, we do need to have some interaction and it's we can still keep our integrity and our independence yeah that's really an important point that you are mentioning that to be sort of in, in a state of a phase transition where you are interacting in a certain aspect while still maintaining your 
complete independence. And that's, I guess, absolutely vital in making sure the research we are doing remains true, whereas the policymaking can benefit from the research and sort of also uh, really involves in the next steps of what needs to happen. So that's a very difficult balance to maintain. And I'm sure Joint Research Center is playing a big role in actually identifying what needs to happen to maintain such a balance. I'm assuming that apart, you already mentioned about Canada, but apart from European Union and Canada, there are also other societies and centers which are involved across the world for making science-based policy decisions, science-informed policy decisions. So do you have, how do, I don't know, a sort of overview of how, on what, let's say, grounds they are common and how they are operating or they are like completely different based on which part, like which democracy they are currently located at? I mean, there is a network called INSA, which is the International Network of Government Science Advisors. So they work uh, globally and they have uh, regional chapters like in Africa, in Latin America, in Europe and, 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 and so on. And, you know, they collect evidence on and develop actually also, they have some very interesting simulation exercises where you do role plays, you know, where you get into the into the role of a policymaker as a scientist, as a researcher, and you kind of have to make a decision, you know, about. So this is not the only thing that they do, but just to say they have these regional chapters around the world that, uh, yeah, that works uh, on this what they call science advice, which is, yeah, evidence-informed uh, policymaking. So th they are, things that they are a good source to to look at uh, for more kind of global, uh, yeah, global input. So if you're looking at, at the research side of things, we, on the one hand, have the universities that operate locally and, of course, in collaboration with other, other universities, other research groups. And we have other research facilities and they organize in international uh, societies such as MIKAI in our case, like uh, in the medical imaging domain. So what would you say are the possibilities to, like for societies like these, for uh, research societies to interact with, for example, with associations, uh, worldwide global associations for um, policymaking or uh, policymakers on the continental or national level? You could probably reach out and, and try to organize uh, workshops or, or, or something uh, together, pooling the resources. So I think while I was still at the Joint Research Center, we had uh, summer schools, for example, where we put together between 100, around 150 scientists and policymakers for three days and really kind of working, you know, on how do we improve their work at the interface between science and policy with exercises, masterclasses, presentations, and so on. So that's that's something that you could do. But I also, I had a look at the Mikai website before, uh, before the, the podcast. And one thing that, if I remember correctly, I remember there was some kind of fellowships or something with industry, if I'm not mistaken. I was like, how about organizing fellowships with policy? You know, I, I know of other 
you know, scientific organizations that that have these policy fellowships. And it's it can be it can have all kinds of formats. It can be a one week thing. It can be two months or it can be, you know, one day a month. But this is just kind of to build. It helps building the bridge. Right. So I think policy fellowships could could be something that is really beneficial because you're kind of you're working together either intensely over two weeks or longer time over a year, one day a month or something. So you really build up relationships and hence you kind of yeah have an open door to come and ask questions to improve your political savviness for when you go for your next meeting or something, right? You you build your network. Yeah, that seems like an amazing idea that, uh, of course, we can think about policy fellowships where premier scientific societies can come together with the policymakers. There are also the, the ideas that you talked about doing workshops, summer schools where a selected few from the scientific society who are interested in translating can come together with policymaker and really learn how to have an open dialogue constructive dialogue rather than criticizing each other to death. Uh, on that uh, wonderful note, thank you so much for your time, Len. It was really, really wonderful talking to you. We learned so much. I can't tell you because this is the first time we have a guest who is coming from a completely different background, from policy background. And our listeners who are mostly researchers from both clinical and technical background can learn a lot from it. That's probably a completely new window that opened for them. Uh, thank you so much for being here and helping us out there. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation today. The pleasure is all mine. Really, I was very excited to to talk about this because it's like being, you know, I work for this for on this for five, six years. And when I get requests, does this be relevant for us? And this, you know, we are interested to know more. I'm I'm very happy. <laughs> so the pleasure is all mine.